invites you for the next half hour to join us for interviews, discussion, inspiration and for strategies to help you fulfil your potential both in life and in business. Welcome to Remarkable Woman Radio. I'm Mandy Beverly, and we are back again this week with the lovely Susan Mann. Now, Sue is a lecturer, a researcher, and almost a PhD, or now a PhD? Almost a PhD. Almost a PhD. So welcome, Sue. Thank you. Now, um, now Sue is a very interesting lady. Now, she said that she didn't know whether she'd have much to share with us, but I've got so many questions, so I know the next half hour is going to go really quickly. Now, Sue, being a lecturer at the School of Public Health and also with psychosocial studies in psychology, for one thing, and then you're also researching... Um, doing a lot of academic research through the National Institute for Stroke and Applied Neuroscience. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, cool. So tell me, what exactly is all of that? What do you do? And because I know it's, um, you're doing a lot of really great things here. So, yeah, so at the moment, my role basically involves, well, I'm a lecturer, so I'm a lecturer at the university. So that's, I lecture in, um, we have a new pathway now, which is rehabilitation psychology. So project predominantly my area of not expertise but interest is really all neuroscience based and predominantly in chronic conditions so things like stroke, traumatic brain injury, um, multiple sclerosis, any kind of neurodegenerative kind of disease and so I'm uh, lecturing the we have a new pathway now or program at the university for rehab psych where you get a registration for a, as a psychologist and I take basically all the neuropsych assessments. So I teach people how to assess people that have dementia or they've had a brain injury, quite a trauma, normally quite a significant brain injury, yeah. and they end up in rehabilitation. So they'll end up at um, Cavitz or ABI, Laura or Ferguson, um, those type of places. So I teach them basically how to assess people, how to pick the assessments, how to interpret those assessments and then how to put that into um, developing a rehabilitation program or cognitive rehabilitation program which is sort of what my area of interest is. So that's a master's level so I teach, oh, that's a new paper for this year which I teach and then I also do undergraduate so I teach um, brain and behaviour and biopsychology so anything to do with neurological neurological disorders, um, neuroanatomy, cells, um, basically going back to the basics, and that's year two and three. Wow, that's fantastic. So if you're developing a new pathway, yep. you know, in psychology, I mean, because this is huge, isn't it? Because now as the population is ageing, there are so many that now um, have Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, all of these chronic conditions are on the rise. So rehabilitation becomes huge, doesn't it? Yeah, so that's, and that, you're t- totally right. So the ageing population is increasing. So what we're finding is that people that have chronic disorders are living for longer with the effects of chronic conditions and obviously things when you're talking about things like stroke the the management of stroke has improved so people are being thrombolized earlier they're presenting to hospital earlier so they're they're living with the effects of disability for much much longer Um, so where my sort of where my teaching connects with my research is that so my PhD looked at what cognition looked like long term for stroke survivors so four years after people had their stroke what did cognition look like Um, and what I found was that 84% of people at four years had moderate to significant 
cognitive deficits, more than one domain of cognition. So when we're talking about domains, we're talking about their memory or their attention, um, language. Do you mean that it hadn't got any better or that it had got begun to get worse? It had a... There were two... Um, things that I found, A, that they hadn't got better and B, that they I, did, I looked at a trajectory over time that they progressively got worse. Obviously that's dependent some groups um, progressed more than others um, so people that were um, obviously older age yeah. you know, it, they're going to get worse anyway um, but the thing that I found the most was the um, influence of vascular risk factors so people who are hypertensive who are diabetic and who had arrhythmia so heart disease or Mm -hmm. um, irregular um, heart conditions um, they progressively got worse over time yeah that's so that's really interesting and so therefore you then step in and go well what can be done to prevent that because that's a huge burden on society on families on the person themselves it becomes quite a you know, it becomes quite a whirlwind of problems there, doesn't it? Yeah, so I guess that's from that information, which, and I've just published a couple of papers off on the trajectory of cognition. In New Zealand, so in New Zealand, there is no research on long-term data for cognition and stroke. So what happens... Really? Yeah, it's it's quite... Normally, it's up to a year, so there's been nothing sort of more than a year. Um, and the studies that we conduct at the university, they're huge epidemiology studies, so we do them every um, 10 years. So this is the fourth one that we've done... Well, we completed that five years ago now. Yeah. Um, so they're big population-based data sets, so they're really the gold standard of research. You know, we're not just sort of taking you know, with hospital-based or community-based people where we're finding stroke. These are, you know, frontline presenting to hospitals. We call it the hot pursuit method. They're coming through um, TIA clinics or stroke clinics. They're coming through their GP practices. They're going through rest times, private hospitals. So, you know, we're capturing the data set that we've got, which I used, you know, is a really robust robust data set and it's also very representative of what's happening in New Zealand at the moment. Wow. So from from sort of from my PhD research, now what I'm doing, which is my sort of postdoctorate You're keeping stuff, on going. I'm keeping on going. <laughs> well, now what I want to do is find out why there is no, why people are progressing and part of that reason is because there's no rehab in New Zealand at all for cognition. So for long term or even for short term? For sh- short term. Wow. So anybody that goes through the hospital system in New Zealand, um, and now they have early dis- support discharge as well. They will get physio. They'll get occupational therapy. So what? What primarily the focus is on is making people function mm-hmm. properly to get them back to you know being able to to function independently and and normally. But if you can't think properly, if your processing speed has slowed down, you know if you can't remember where your keys are, if you can't remember when you go to the supermarket, what things you need, you know. It affects everything you do. Yeah. Then your quality of life reduces, and your dependence on others reduces as well. But so it becomes a burden, sort of, in more ways than one. So mm. what I'm trying to focus on now is doing a pilot study, which is just about to start at North Shore Hospital, yeah. where we're looking at a computerised, computer-based intervention, which is it's five weeks of intensive computer training to try and get people to who have cognitive deficits to improve basically be able to function. So video games for the cognitively impaired? <laughs> sort of, yeah, except it's not your luminosity or your brain tree or your brain training. I mean, this is specialised 
rehabilitation. I, I, I know, it. but there are there are programs out there that do literally use computer based. Yeah, because just to be able to retrain and, yeah. and mm, that's but, interesting. But saying that, I mean, anybody that does any kind of brain, brain training on, on a computer, it's, you know, any kind of stimulation like that is good for you. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but the kids spending too much time on iPads and things like that. Yeah, I think it to the extreme possibly. It's to the extreme probably, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's cool. So you're still a bit of a rebel then going to find out why and what can be put in place and really help. Yeah. yeah. And then my other hat of of all of this is obviously this is where my, my passion is, is I also manage the sludge clinical trial, which is looked at um, primary prevention. So where predominantly all of our research is focused on, you know, after stroke happens. Yeah. Um, which obviously with my PhD, you know, it's after the event, but you know the cognitive stuff. I want to focus on trying to improve that. The other study that we're doing at the moment is primary, so you're looking at trying to get people to improve their lifestyle, motivate them to, you know, make themselves be responsible for health choices um, to prevent having a stroke and CVD. Wow, that's a huge uphill battle for some. Yeah, yeah, for some. So it's almost like working out how to inspire them, whether they motivate them, because when they're inspired, it comes from within. Yeah, and when they're motivated, they need a kick from behind. Absolutely. So figuring those two out, that's the yeah. And what drives health behaviours is complex. You know, there are lots of things. So we're looking at a a coaching intervention. So it's health and wellness coaching. Um, It's a huge randomised control trial. And we're looking at the people that get the coaching have nine months of basic, you know, quite intensive coaching. Mm -hmm. Um, And so far we've just had, you know, we've had some amazing results. And it's all demographic. So we're stratified um, ethnicity-wise. We have 80 in each group so we've got 320 in total 160 in each group of usual care and people that have had the coaching and for some people it's just been life-changing um you know people that that can't afford to to go to gyms and can't afford to have you know make really you know buy expensive food but at the same time they can make better choices about their selection yeah um, diet and exercise and, and it really makes them help them help themselves and it's extremely empowering too. That's a really good point isn't it to be actually to empower someone on the journey Yeah, I think that's actually really wise because then they're firmly in the driving seat for their own health they've become responsible rather than thinking everybody else has got the answer sure. it's like those tiny little tweaks those tiny little changes we know can make a huge difference to us when we take our own advice <laughs> With health, with health changes. Speaking yeah. to myself here, yeah. but it, but the great thing about it, and I think that's the way, especially research is going now. You know, um, the model has changed quite a bit, where it is, it's more of a participatory approach and collaboration between the researcher and the participant. And the great thing is with this approach too is that the participants become so empowered that then they empower other people and it's sort of a you know a domino effect it's a knock-on effect so it's it's you know really just a sort of rewarding for everybody as well that's brilliant and what sort of things do you find that they are discovering about their journey you know through this coaching a lot of it is based upon um how they manage and regulate their stress obviously there are a lot of drivers you know people that um a lot of our demographic are in south auckland so they're you know very um, low SES socioeconomic status. Um, a lot of them are in um, 
you know, quite low paid jobs so that when they take time off sick, you know, when they do get sick, and you've got to remember these are all people with chronic disease already, mm. they're already at high risk, I should have said that, already at high, moderate high risk of having a stroke or cardiovascular disease. So these are people that are diabetic, they've got really high cholesterol, um, they have extremely high hypertension, Predominantly, most of them are morbidly obese. Um, so they're right on the cusp of something major hap- happening. Right. So a lot of it is, is regulation of stress. A lot of it is... Um, a- a lot of it is exercise based, so um, just getting out and doing regular, regular exercises. Some of it is um, resolving issues from the past. Mm-hmm. So we have a sort of what we call a life satisfaction circle. So you know, it, it looks like it's it's segments of you know what is health and wellbeing, spirituality, stress, um, obviously community. So it's segments of what what things are important in people's lives and they really when the sessions of coaching start they pick something that they feel is not quite you know a 10 out of 10 that needs to be improved yeah and then you know we do values we look at their values and what's important to them um sort of a typical kind of coaching tools and then through that sort of journey they discover the things areas in their lives which you know they they want to make better choices on and it, it's sort of again it's a knock-on effect once you feel good about yourself and you're empowered absolutely yeah. everything else follows on absolutely i think it's just really smart i'm really excited to see the results of this yeah yeah excellent wow and now um so how did you get started on all of this so because obviously we've known each other for a long time so it's long really time. wonderful yeah. to reconnect today yeah but um and you know reading through all of your things it's a fairly impressive list that you've got going on there so but how did you get started on all of this so basically through life experience as, as we all do so 12 years ago you, you obviously know a bit of my story i went through a marriage breakup um a surprise marriage breakup at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of reassessed everything at that time. I was 38. I had three children, uh, one uh, with a serious neurological condition in a wheelchair, living overseas in Hong Kong. And I thought, holy moly, you know, I've my marriage has ended. I thought I was financially secure for the rest of my life. I had no skills. You know, I got married at 21. I really had no qualifications living overseas. I hadn't worked. And I just took a long, hard look at myself sort of over that, that that first year of, you know, what am I going to do with my life? And I actually thought that I'd been a great mother. I still am a great mother. Yeah. Um, yeah <laughs> and I contributed a lot to my marriage. And I just thought, you know, I don't want to be one of those statistics where, you know, I came, came back to New Zealand and I had to go on the benefit or, you know, I didn't do something for myself. I f- felt I'd given quite a few years to the kids at that point they were sort of getting a little bit older but, but still you know yeah young. but it is it's it's really easy just to sort of put everybody else first yeah. and and forget about yourself and and it's just one when those things happen you realize that you can't do that it's not you a can't do thing that. Yeah. yeah and yeah. i i guess and many probably um uh, of the listeners have probably got you know everyone goes through these life crises it's something I never thought would happen but at the same time um, it's probably the best thing that's ever happened to me because it made me think and look at myself and say hang on a minute you know I'm intelligent I can go out and do what I want to do so I came back I had no idea what I wanted to do first of all I thought I'd sell Herbalife and that really 
didn't work for me at all Um, because I just couldn't ring up cold calling people. It was just horrible. And again, other people will know they go through these things where they reassess what what am I going to do, you know. Um, You've got to try something sometimes just to figure out what you don't want to do. Of course. And I guess because I had a child with a neurological disorder, just, you know, and saw really firsthand the frustrations he's had growing up with, you know, having, um, you know, lots of cognitive difficulties. He had huge behavioural difficulties. Um, And my oldest son had had some neurological um, issues as well. So I thought it really interested me in the psychology of it, I guess. So I thought, right, I'm going to study. I came back, started university. And then my pathway sort of... um, Obviously, went along the psychology. First of all, I wanted to do clinical psychology. Then I thought, no, I don't really want to work in with people with psychiatric disorders. And um, you know, you had you know, different interests that you yeah, wanted it was to all neuro. Yeah. It was really all neuro neuropsych based, mm-hmm. um, and that's sort of how that pathway happened. And then it, it's sort of been, you know, and it, as I said, it hasn't been easy. I've been a single parent basically. For a while now. For a while, you know, <laughs> for a while. I've been back, as I said, 12 years now. Luckily, the older two children were at school. Yeah. Um, but it's also been, it's been really rewarding. As I said, it's been an incredibly empowering, you know, process for me because because I guess the, the thing that's come out of all of, all of this, even though I've got a, you know, fantastic partner now, is, is that I'll be okay. Yeah. Anything I do that I can put my mind to, I, I can do it, you know, and now what's happened is I've got a full-time permanent teaching position, lecturing position. I've submitted a PhD, which I never thought I would probably ever be able to do in my life. Because, you know, I, I left, it's so cool. I'm so I left proud school of you. at 15. You know, I never thought, you know, I I'm was... so proud of you, Sue. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. We're going to take a break. In okay. just a moment, we're going to be back to hear more about Susan Mann in just a moment. Tonight 
Remarkable Woman Radio, I'm Mandy Beverly, and I am here talking with Susan Mann and we've just been listening to Sue's favourite song at the moment um, by Justin Timberlake, Say Something, and it's such a lovely song. So, Sue, you juggle so many things in your life. How do you do it? That's the big question that I love to ask everybody that comes on here because there is so, so much to do these days. I think... You know, we're innately different and I think what drives us, um, you know, to be able to manage, I mean, I don't ever look at it as what what I juggle with, I just look at it as I do, you know, I mean, every day is, you know, you have to go to work and you have to, you know, do certain things during the day and, you know, I think now that I've put my PhD in, it's just... It's a lot less stress. How did you fit that in? Because I don't even know what's no involved idea. in it. Yeah. Oh, it's well. I know I went through a cancer diagnosis, so it's been you know you personally. Yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So that was thrown in there as well. So during my uh, two years ago, I think yeah, two years ago, uh, I have the BRCA gene. So I was diagnosed. My father passed away. Diagnosed well. I had a positive test with BRCA and yeah, they found I had ovarian cancer. I had a, went to my specialist after I had that diagnosis and so I went through major surgery just less than a year and a half ago, I think. Wow. Um, so I guess, and I guess this is what I'm trying to say, hey, do you juggle? So I had major, eight hours of surgery, I had major surgery and I was back to work three weeks later. Ooh. So I think... I guess some people have, you know, it's about resilience, adjustment and coping. I love those three. And we look at Mm -hmm. that when we look at chronic illness as well. People have different levels of adjustment, resilience and coping. And it's it it changes over time. You know, it's contextual. It depends on your environment, your support system at home. Yeah. Um, You know, I've got a really, really good support system with my partner and my children. Um, And, yeah, you, you bounce back from that and then you you move on to the next thing. So I don't ever look at those things as setbacks. It's a bit like my marriage, when my marriage broke up, I really looked at myself as a victim. And then I remember going to see a psychologist and she said, stop over-catastrophizing and calling yourself a victim and don't say, don't don't frame it that your husband left you, frame it as my marriage broke up because mm-hmm. it's very different 
yeah, you've got the, either the... Because it's, empa- it's yeah. more empowering saying mm-hmm. it like that. Yeah, yeah definitely. Because yeah. I look at all the benefits of all the challenges that people go Absolutely. through. And um, the word even my sister used today, it's, it's that pivot word. How do people pivot yeah. when, they, when, they, when they have those challenges? Yeah. You know, just, and I love that, adjust, the adjustment, resilience and coping. Yeah. That, yeah, and as I said, those are all three kind of constructs we use in psychology anyway. And as I said, when people are facing illness, you know, people that have been, you know, walking athletes, and then they have a spinal cord injury and they can't ever walk again. But, you know, athletes have a certain innate, you know, they're motivated anyway and they are quite resilient because they've got to be, you know, they've got to train and so all of those things contribute to how people cope with with illness or disease or... And as I said, I think I'm just... That's me. I think I've always been quite tough like that even through my childhood. You know, I left home quite early. Um... You know the the challenging thing now is that all my three children have the BRCA gene as well, so mm-hmm. okay. they're facing their own issues. So you know, um, yeah, my daughter's got some challenging decisions to make, sort of in the next few years about where she wants to go, because obviously it gets stronger the, the younger old, the, the, uh, the, the family young. member, the uh-huh. youngest family member. Yeah, it gets it gets stronger and younger. So, and in my case, I mean, my brother and I both have it from my father. His brother and sister had it. My three children have it, so it's got it's got a flow yeah. on effect. Yeah, ah, it's yeah, heartbreaking in lots of ways, but definitely one to Look, build resilience with, isn't it? Of and course, and knowledge is a good thing. You know, yeah. I, you know there is pros and cons to genetic testing, but in my case, it saved my life. I mean, if I hadn't had the test, I would be, I wouldn't be here. Yeah, wow, that's a fact. Well, you look amazing Thank and you. well done. So Thank cool you. to to see you getting through all of this. It's amazing. So definitely a lot of empathy there for all your patients and research people. I mean, it's huge. So, so I think we've covered that. Your guiding principle for your life is it starts with the word tough. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, there's another better. Don't look back. <laughs> don't look back. There you go. You've got it here. <laughs> don't look. Don't get me wrong. There, are, you know, you, there are always going to be lows, and you've, you know, that, that's yeah. natural. You know, Absolutely. you can't be. Yeah. yeah, it's called life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I love the Tony Robbins thing. Life doesn't get better. You just no. Life doesn't get easier. You've got to get better. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's cool. And so, um, so. When your boundaries and when your comfort zone's really pushed, yep. Um, how do you how do you cope? Do you have like a little saying that you that you say to yourself? Or I actually breathe. Um, the you, and you probably find this when you're presenting. So that that's the great thing about lecturing. It takes you totally outside your comfort zone, and that's the other thing I've sort of learned as I get older. It's better to do that. Taking yourself out of your comfort zone again is really, really empowering. Mm. And because once you've you've set yourself a challenge and you think, oh yes, I can do that, lecturing can be really nerve wracking. Sometimes I'm teaching classes of 120 kids, and when I first started teaching four years ago, I, I speak really, really quickly when I get nervous, and the kids would be up the back of the lecture, I'd say to them, look, I get really nervous when I speak. I get really bright red in the face. So I said, if I go speak too quickly, just flap your hands at the back of the classroom like a bird in the lecture theatre and I'll know that, you know, without being offensive, you know, saying, oh, you're talking too fast, which they some some of them do. Um, but it's, yeah, it's really apparent and it gets easier over time. So yeah. the slower... I get to speak, which I've, it's still a technique I've got to learn. I think the calmer I become, you, you know, even physiological, I can I can 
that yeah. fight, flight, anxious, stress, you know, I can I can actually calm myself down yeah. just by lowering my voice and my tone and I just put myself into that, that space. And just breathe. It's so cool. Breathe. Balance balance your breathing, you balance yeah. your mind. Yeah, that's cool. Now, I'm very curious and we haven't got much time left, but um, with planning, with research and things like that, do you have a real quick little tool or hack that you can share with our listeners? In, in regards to what? Does an research idea planning or, or, yeah, how do, you, how do you plan an idea? How do you... Yeah, I guess, again, you've got to, you plan an idea from from where you've already been. So, you know, the research that one idea leads to another and there are, there are always different trajectories and pathways. But I guess the biggest thing is you've got to be passionate in what you want to do and it makes it a bit easier. The process of research is a pain um, because you've got to be funded. So mm-hmm. funding is, is half half the problem. I was lucky with my... Um, with the PhD because I was funded through the Neurological Foundation. I got a really large scholarship, so I really didn't have to work about being funded. But, yeah, I guess it's that passion of, you know, finding something really exciting and and trying to, you know, improve outcomes for other people. It sort of, it becomes, the process becomes quite easier. The more you do it. focus on the bigger picture. You focus definitely on the bigger picture. So my question, my last question, because we've run out of time, is... What is most remarkable about you, about what you do and who you are? God, that's the toughest question, isn't it? <laughs> and you. I shouldn't save Thank it for you. last, should oh, I? <laughs> um, but I, I don't know what's ra- remarkable about me. I guess I'm... Uh, what's remarkable, I guess, is that I have been at rock bottom. I've picked myself up, predominantly on my own with no support. I don't have any support from, from my f- immediate family, from my parents, my mother. Um... But, yeah, I've just, yeah, I guess I've picked myself up. I've moved forward. And I guess for anybody else, it's really a lesson that, that you know, things can get really bad, but you can, anybody can do what they set their mind to it. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me, Sue. Um, that's all for Remarkable Woman Radio today. See you next week.